Hello and welcome to the FilmPulse.net podcast. This is episode number 81. My name is Adam. With me today we have Kevin. How are you, Kevin? Doing okay. Doing okay? Good. Good. <laughs> today we have a great show lined up. First we'll be speaking with directors Jason Lapierre and producer Lewin Webb on their new film, I Declare War, which is currently on VOD and hits theaters Friday. Then we'll be going over some of what we've been watching before getting Ernie back on the show to do a feature review of The World's End. And finally, we'll be going over this week's movie predictions, new on VOD and DVD and Blu-ray releases. First up, let's speak with directors Jason Lapierre and producer Lewin Webb on their film, I Declare War. First off, thank you so much, guys, for taking some time to speak with me. Why don't we start off by just giving the listeners an idea of what they're in store for with I Declare War. Um, thank you very much for having us, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Lewin, do you, do you maybe want to, you've pitched the movie several million times. Why don't you take a shot at it? I was going to say, yeah, never in this, never in the back end, though. Um, you're, in for a ride. You're, in for, you're in for an antidote and you're in for a truly entertaining and, and revelatory, refreshing film. A film that um, a film that isn't uh, that perhaps isn't a blockbuster, but as I say, is an antidote and is somewhat refreshing in that regard. Take it, Jason. <laughs> um, oh, and just to let everybody know, that was Lewin Webb, the uh, one of the producers on the film, and I'm Jason LaPere, the writer and the co-director of I Declare War. Uh, I Declare War is a story about a group of kids playing a game of war in the forest and imagining that they have real weapons. Machine guns, grenades, rocket launchers, you have it. So the basically the entire film is through the perspective of their imagination. So when they're shooting guns, we see them actually shooting guns, even though they're playing with toys and sticks and what have you. Exactly, yeah. And the film sort of takes different opportunities to show you um, what's happening through the kids' perspective, uh, and sometimes through you know a more realistic perspective, depending on you know the intensity of each scene. Absolutely, and I want to I'm going to get back to that in a little bit. But first, I want to just um, ask about when you were writing the script. Did you? I take it you drew from your own childhood when when writing the script. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that sort of connected Rob and Lewin and I right from the very beginning. Um, and I think draws a lot of people to the film is that um, we all played war when we were kids, you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's something that we've all discovered is is some uh, is pretty universal, actually, like lots of people have come up to us after seeing the film and said, Oh, my God, I did exactly the same thing when I was a kid. So yes, when I wrote the script, uh, I was very specifically thinking of, uh, of playing uh, war in the woods with my friends and uh, you know as fate would have it when we came to actually shoot the film we shot it exactly where Rob Wilson played war as a 13 year old kid Um, yeah and in fact (laughs) this is a story that Rob's told in a lot of interviews and I love sharing it is that not only were we shooting right where he played but um, his parents still live nearby so he was crashing at his parents so (laughs) the whole time we were shooting it must have been a huge like time warp back to being 13 for Rob and that's kind of the the fun thing about this movie is that it it at least for me it instantly had that kind of nostalgic quality to it where it it made me remember times playing these types of games with my friends as well. Um, absolutely, and as Jason was saying, there were there are many commonalities that I think that that uh, Rob Patrick, our other producing partner, 
and everybody who was involved with the with the production, from Ray Dumara, cinematographer, everyone. I mean, there were there were qualities about the script that nostalgia being a key one for me personally when i first read the property it was also the aspect of imaginative play i'm slightly older god forbid than robin <laughs> we're about a week apart as i understand it yeah. but I, I was in the position where um i had two young kids when i first read the screenplay who were slightly older and closer to the age of the uh, of the cast of the characters by the time we actually ended up shooting it but for me it was a huge reflection of what i was observing and seeing that was going on with my own family and my own children. And so that was an enormous appeal for me. And it's another one of the really um, vibrant qualities of the screenplay and of the subsequent film that really, really stood out. But that was one of the nice things about it because we all came with our own different sort of perspective, but they're all things that were very, very clear and identified by Jason in his original screenplay. So the film starts with the game having already begun and it ends, <laughs> it ends basically as soon as it's over. Now, I can probably guess, but what made you forego any type of, like, bookends that, that take place before or after the, the war? You know, it's, it's funny. Um, when I was, uh, I had been a screenwriter for a number of years uh, before uh, we made the film, or before I even wrote I Declare War. And one of my favorite screenwriting rules is to begin in the middle of things. And that's actually like Socrates wrote, wrote that. So that's an, that's an old one. But um, in my own movie going habits, you know, I don't generally like a movie to sort of lay out a big sort of introductory passage. I like to be thrown into the deep end. And that's that's part of the fun of, of a great movie for me is like the movie giving you just enough to piece it together for yourself. And I'll support oh. Jason on this because sure enough, we being, you know, the good storytellers that we like to think we are, Rob and I insisted that we shoot an opening bookend basically that would have contextualized and give us a sense of introduction to all of the characters. So we shot it and we put it into one of the early cuts and we all looked at it. And I suspect one of the very, very first things that we took out was that opening sort of prologue. Because Jason's right. I mean, there's something that's just far more visceral and absolute in the storytelling, particularly in the context of this particular film with, with young people, kids playing after school. It, and it, it speaks to the reality of the moment and the circumstance and the situation. So we did toy with the bookend, but to Jason's point, he's completely right. Although it was a really fun little bookend too, because what we shot was the teams being picked at the beginning of the game, and it uh, actually it wound up uh, being a great little character piece because you learned so much about the kids by what order they were picked in and who was picked last and who was picked first. And but but yeah, that's the thing. Kids are in the moment, right? Like yeah. that's what's magical about childhood is that it's only about the present time, and and that's really what the whole film was about. Was about let's try to recapture this feeling of being twelve or thirteen years old where. You know, everything is the most important thing that's ever happened. And, and, you know, when a girl tells you that she doesn't like you, then you can't, you're not thinking about the future or the past. It's just at that moment. And at that moment, it's the, it's the worst day of your life. And, and that's one thing that I liked so much about the film. And, and I do like how you didn't, you just threw us right in there. And rather than introducing each character and who they were and their personality, we got to know them as the film progressed. And I, and I really liked that way of, of telling the story and introducing the characters where there wasn't this kind of heavy-handed exposition, you know, to introduce everybody. Like, yeah. it just, it happened organically as the film went on. It's true. Um, it's, it's also a convention of war movies, too, right? Like, if you think right, about great... Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. totally. It's like... like 
uh, you learn by how different characters respond to different moments in battle. That's how you found out about all the characters in Platoon, for example. And yeah, exactly. And it, and it was also, I think it was the, the, you, the use of the opening, not really title credits, but the opening animated sequence as well. It was more important for us to contextualize from the get-go this sensibility of it is a game and they are at play. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were trying to take, make sure that there was no confusion at this point. It's also why we added the sequence at the beginning. Very, very, very overtly and very, very clearly, we needed to show and depict the transition from sticks to guns. Just because that became more important in terms of a prologue, if you want, if you'd like to use that expression, than, than sort of establishing who and what these characters are. Just because the story and the film evolved so naturally and so well with the kids that we didn't feel that that was necessary. Yeah, and I think that that, that just worked so well in the, the way that you guys made it. But sticking with the the transition between uh, the imaginate, like the sticks and then the real guns, one of my favorite elements from the film, going back to what you said before, was that uh, anytime that the kids have conversations that are unrelated to the game, something that you know brings them back into the wor- real world, so to speak, um, their guns turn back into sticks and toys and they're kind of pulled out of the fantasy. Um, I know another example of, of this is when the character of, of Wesley finally lets the fantasy kind of take over and his toy turns into a real gun. Was this something that, that you had were making a conscious decision to do and maybe explain a little bit your thought process in doing that? Yeah, I mean, it's funny that that stuff is not in the script. That was something that came out very organically during pre-production, and there was this great moment where Rob and Lewin and I sat down and said, "Let's let's actually be conscious about this. Like, let's go through scene by scene and let's decide whether the kids have you know real guns or sticks in each scene." And it was a great. We discovered that it was actually a great way to tell the story and to decide, you know, what is the tone of each scene and where are we emotionally at each point in the story where where we're deciding to do this. So, yeah, that was something that came out uh, in the pre-production of the film. So we did sit down. I asked Jason and Robert, we want a roadmap. Because, yeah, you're absolutely right, Adam. It was something that we identified, and it's an important aspect of the of the film and how the device works. The only problem was that the moment that we put ostensibly real but movie real guns into the hands of our young cast, every time that they would appear on set, they would walk themselves over to the props table, meet the armor, and of course, no matter what was happening on the floor, in whatever sequence we were shooting, they would always appear with real guns. <laughs> so, I mean, we did our best, but there is a little bit of serendipity because there are a couple of moments there where, not to imply that any of us lost control versus a bunch of uh, 12, 13-year-olds, but you know, they had as much to do with, with the ultimate decision of what was happening in certain sequences um, in regard to whether they were carrying sticks or real weapons. So, Well, that's interesting because um, I, I wanted to talk about the, the cast because the film features a, a great cast of kids. And I was wondering what it was like to work with such a large cast of children during the production. And were there any other difficulties in, in working with the big cast of kids like that? Oh, we're we're happy to talk about the cast all I, day long. Yeah, you know what? And this is going to say, you know, the, what is the old standard trite expression? Never work with children and dogs. Well, we successfully did it. Did both. <laughs> on- yeah, it's it's a common it's a common question for us. But we're you know the answer is always the same, which is I think all around the board, it was one of the best 
sort of experiences we've any of us has had working on a film i mean just on a basic level of like the enthusiasm that all of those actors brought to the table was so infectious and their energy was so uh, positive and and their you know commitment was so complete you know um, and I think that's a function of being a young actor, but I think it's also a function of, you know, these were all professional actors. They all had varying degrees of experience, but they had all... It's also a function of what it was, Jason. It's a function of the fact that we created this environment that, A, was probably one of the most um, observationally reflective and true films about children of that age. So to a large degree, yeah, they're all professional working actors in their own way, but they're also playing themselves and they're all playing images and mirrors of characters that they know acknowledge and recognize from their own integration into school and their own social integration but they also had the opportunity of again they're running around outside on beautiful summer days so because of the nature of where we shot the film and the very free open way in which we shot the film the kids were allowed to be children they were allowed to treat it less as a job not that and i have to say having produced a number of films with with many many actors some of the actors, most of the actors, all of the actors, and I declare war, were arguably the most professional actors I've ever worked with. They were respectful of everything going on around them. But I, and I, and I give credit to Jason and to Rob and the rest of the crew. There was a really, really positive, fun environment that was created. And as Jason says, the crew fed off the kids, the kids fed off the crew. But we, we, we never let the kids lose sight of the fact that they were working and they were performing. But we also made sure that it was always a fun environment for them. And I think that just speaks volumes through the actual finished film, finished product. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, just another quick note about the performances as well. I mean, uh, a big thing for Rob and I was always to never patronize these kids. We never talked down to them. We created the characters with them on equal footing. And I think that's reflected just in, in the performances. And, the and one- I'm sure... The one, the one other thing I always have to throw out at this point is that the other, the other rube that you always deal with, with, deal with when you work with child actors, are parents. And I think right. that's the area that we lucked out on. Is totally, we were totally, we were, we were completely transparent. As in, this is what we're doing. Like every one of the parents read this script going in. We weren't challenged. We weren't questioned. Everybody got it. Everybody understood it. We sat down with them. We sat down with with parents and kids in prep. We let them work through the script with Jason and Rob. We let the parents ask any question they wanted. We kept it all sort of open and communicative on that level. And uh, frankly, we had the best set of parents who were not just encouraging of their kids. They were encouraging of our entire process. Well, that's that's great. Um, I wanted to talk more about the the subject matter of the film. So it, it tackles almost everything that could cause turmoil in a young person's life. Like, (laughs) I mean, it deals with girls, bullying, friendship, like everything. Were there any other elements that you wanted to explore, but maybe for whatever reason just couldn't fit it into the script or, or maybe it got cut? Experience yet by the point you were writing it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not really. I mean, I just wanted to tell a story that that felt, um, you know, honest about what it was like to be that age. So a lot of it was just drawing on autobi- autobiography, you know, like I just uh, re- tried to remember, you know, what were the big emotional moments from when I was 12 and 13 that I could, you know, use um, to flesh out this story and, and just try to be accurate about, about how the, that stuff felt. So... No, I mean, uh, we, that script um, got worked over over the course of about nine years of development. And, and um, by the time we were ready to shoot it, it, it was pretty much ready to go. 
I mean, the one uh, that we did was encourage Jason to actually add more in the um, Jess Quinn fantasy aspect. Mm. There was a touch of that in the original screenplay, but we really liked it and felt like there could be more, more, more uh, vitalness if we had more aspects of that. So we did yeah. do that. Yeah, and that was fun. I loved, I loved that storyline. And that was the thing that makes this movie so interesting is that there's so many, there's so many layers to it, right? It's, it's. It's a movie about kids, and it deals with real-world problems that kids have, but it's also a war movie, too. I mean, it's like equal parts, and it kind of blends the two so seamlessly that that was one thing that like just instantly drew me into it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> were you concerned with any type of backlash considering the film's subject matter? Because even though it's clearly in their imaginations, you still have kids shooting each other, throwing grenades at each other. Um, if I'm not mistaken, is it, did you get an MPAA rating on this? Uh, we don't have an MPAA rating in the United States, no. We've gone out unrated. Okay. And I think it probably, like there, there's some swearing out. in it, isn't there? Yeah, and, a lot of swearing, but in Canada, we're rated um, 14. Okay, that's so good. give context of the social differences between our two countries. Yeah. I'll, I'll, def- I'll let Lewin address the whole issue of you know, worrying about backlash because that was definitely something that he had to contend with. But I will say that one of the very pleasant and not totally unexpected surprises about the reception of the film is that it really does play as well to younger audiences, if not better, than it does to adult audiences. We've had very good responses from younger and older people. And that speaks again to the fact that I, uh, from day one, the first moment that I read the screenplay, uh, I, I mean, obviously, lots of people have talked about the fact that the film is a combination of everything from Lord of the Flies to Battle Royale to the Goonies to that sort of thing. But you know, mm-hmm. I'd never, uh, I come from a kitchen sink school of drama, very British and all that sort of thing. And I'd never read anything in the North American context that spoke with such an honest voice to kids, of kids, about kids. And it was refreshing in that respect. And it, it, it sort of goes harkens back a little bit to the earlier things we were saying about the, the different things that each of us bought to and saw and felt and found in the screenplay. And again, for me, it, it, it's primarily about imaginative play. And that's what I took in and took out of it. And so in that context, I wasn't, maybe I was being, maybe I'm being too blithe and, and, and not really paying enough, not, wasn't paying enough attention to the potential backlash. But, you know, we live in a society where the utility use presence of guns, it's there. Um, and I've used this expression before, and I'm, perhaps I'm being uh, churlish by saying it, but those who live in glass houses should not throw stones. Mm-hmm. As long as we do live in a culture and a society where guns are present and there is gun violence and guns, guns are an issue, to think that they can be depicted on the nightly news or they are there, and the fact that my kids have to go through lockdown procedures at their junior schools, as I'm sure many other kids have to, and they have to go through them and explain to them because of issues that have happened at Newton and various other uh, throughout our world. I mean, they're there. For us to ignore them, uh, to ignore the presence of guns and the, and the social cultural implication and influence of guns on young people, I think is ignorance on our part. So it's not like we're going out and it was never, I, I never understood it. And certainly in the early days discussing the project with Jason and with Rob, never was there an intent to sensationalize these things. If anything, I would go as far as saying Jason comes from a, um, his father was in the military. Uh, Rob comes from a background where, where he had um, um, recreational guns in the sense of family 
had guns around. I certainly come from a family where my family had guns growing up in rural England and that sort of thing. They're there. And for us to ignore them, I think, is uh, blight. And we can't do that. Yeah. And, and concerned about a backlash? No. Are we, are we pleased that we may have stimulated some discussion about it? Wasn't our intent, but we'll certainly take it. And I would like to say that, like, it, this isn't, for, for those of you listening that, that haven't seen the film, it's not like it's overly violent or anything like that. I mean, it's it's nothing it's nothing of that sort. I think that it's all very tastefully done. And if you're a boy growing up, you're going to play with toy guns. I, I mean, I don't think that there's too many young boys out there that haven't played with guns. I mean, it's it's fun. That's what kids do. And yeah, the, the only time um, we've seen like serious outrage about the guns in the film are from people who haven't seen the film. Yeah, like uh, people who saw the trailer online and you know fired up some forum about you know how outraged they are. Anyone who sees the film, I mean, it's immediately obvious that the guns are just a metaphor for the emotional sort of intensity of the kids, and it's not a movie about guns. It's a movie about childhood, right? Yeah, exactly. I have one final question. Uh, what do you think the future holds? for PK and his friends. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but you should ask the kids that because every single one of them approached us about wanting to uh, coming up with a story idea for a sequel based on their characters. <laughs> I think it'd be great for a sequel. Yeah, I'm just, you, I'll have to leave that with the, uh, the audience's imagination. Lewin, do you want to, do you have any, uh, any tidbits about maybe what uh, high school is going to be like for PK? <laughs> no, I, I was actually thinking beyond high school and, how PK is going to arguably have become the next Harvey Weinstein or something. I was, gonna, I was just going to make that <laughs> joke. I was going to say PK yeah. is going to be a movie producer, Lewis. Yeah. That's what he's going to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think PK's already in his own mind, structurally moved beyond high school and all of its implications. So. Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much, guys, for taking some time to uh, speak with us. Oh, that's uh, fantastic. Thank you very much, Adam. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks again, guys. Be sure to check out I Declare War on VOD now and in select cities this Friday. I would suggest seeing it in the theater if it's playing in your area. That's People should just assume that at this point. That's what I always say. Okay. Really? Uh, before, before getting into some of what we've been watching, I wanted to quickly mention the thing that everybody's talking about on the internet. What's that? Ben Affleck as Batman. Just want to get your thoughts. What are you talking about? Oh, is this news? Is this news to you? This is this is slight news, I guess. I just yeah, I didn't I didn't find this out until like well after, and I was just sort of like, eh, whatever. Moving on. It's just like whatever. I just, I mean, I just don't understand putting Batman into the next Superman film. Like I know why they're doing it to drum up more interest, but I mean, if you can't make a Superman movie. On the strength of Superman himself, like you have to inject Batman into it. Just don't make one. Well, I think that it's not. It's not that. It's just that every people have been talking about a Batman and Superman crossover movie for a long time. I think that that's something that fans really wanted. I mean, they they cross over a lot in the comic books. Yeah. And I think that that's something that people wanted. I, when I first found out that they were doing that, I I was pretty excited. But I was initially excited when I. First heard the news, and then I was immediately like uh, wrought with apprehension because, like, how are they gonna do it? Like, because you know that they're not gonna follow the comic books because they never do, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. they obviously should. 
the comic books get it right, the movies rarely I, ever get I it right. I just I cannot wait for Affleck's Batman voice. It's gonna be amazing. Yeah, that I just that I just can't see. Because it really all. doesn't matter who the hell you get to play Batman. It's not like you have to be a good actor to play Batman. You just talk in a ridiculous voice and do stunts. That's it. Right. I mean, I don't think people are are too upset about Christian Bale not returning as Batman because Batman is the type of character where it it can be played by multiple people, and I don't yeah. think it's like James Bond where I don't think people are bothered yeah. by it. The only thing that sort of bothers me is that this takes Ben Affleck away time away from what he's actually really good at, which is directing films. So well, he th- could be making a film during this time. Well, I think that uh, what he was going to be doing was working on a remake of Stephen King's The Stand. Oh. I think that's what he was going to be doing, and then he couldn't. he can't do it anymore, so it was something else. He is in the position right now where he can do whatever the hell he wants. He owns Hollywood, really. Yeah. Uh, there's a funny tweet. The, of course, when this news broke, there was a slew of tweets and posts and things and people weighing in on it. And Roadside Attractions sent out a really great tweet that I like. It just says, I think Ben Affleck can easily channel Bruce Wayne's state of mind. Just 10 years ago, he saw his career murdered right in front of him. (laughs) 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 I thought that was really funny. Uh, Follow follow, uh, Roadside Attractions, people. At Roadside Tweets. It's great. So Uh, I enjoyed that. I basically don't care yeah, I, I could get I think that when Heath Ledger was first cast as the Joker, people were all up in arms about that, thinking that it wasn't going to work. And, I mean, look look how that turned out. So I think that the idea of him as Batman is the least concerning thing about that whole project. Yeah, there's a lot of other things that people need to be worried about. It will be interesting, though, if... I was thinking about this. If he's brought on as more than just an actor. Do you know what I mean? Like if he is allowed some sort of creative input on the movie, I think that that could be good because you look at, you look at Zack Snyder and he's a very visual director. Yeah. He he cannot do anything with character or plot. And Ben Affleck is really good at, you know, developing characters. So we'll see. So, yeah. So basically, we'll we'll just. I mean, I'm not. I have. I don't think I've commented on it one way or the other. I don't care. Who gives a shit? <laughs> well, let's go ahead and get into some of what we've been watching. I last week was a really bad week for me. This week was a very good week. For hey, me. you're killing it here. Yeah. You actually saw things that you enjoyed. Good for I you. Know. Good for you. It's, it's so rare for me. You deserve it. I started the week off with the look, the look of love, which is currently playing on video on demand. It stars Steve Coogan as um, Paul Raymond, who in the states we probably not many people know who he is. But when he was alive, he was the richest man in Britain. He was super, super wealthy. He was kind of a pornographer in a way. I, w- I would, I would relate him to Hugh Hefner. Okay, where he he owned. A whole bunch of property, including some strip clubs, 
sort of strip clubs. I, I would say they're more like burlesque houses. Okay. There were more like performance-based places, and he was like part owner of a men's magazine, and and uh, he just really big businessman. But at any rate, this is your pretty standard biopic. I wasn't real big on it, but it visually looks really good. Much of it takes place in the 70s, so it has a really, really good look to it. The the directing was pretty solid. This is by Michael Winterbottom, the guy that did the trip, Twenty Four Hour Party People, uh, The Killer Inside Me. He he is definitely a director that's all over the place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is he is all over the place. But it's a light recommend for me. There were there were moments of it I liked. I mean, Steve Coogan. I'm such a fan of his. It's really hard for me to see a movie with him in it and not enjoy it. And his character in this was not a very likable guy, but at the same time, he was just so charming and charismatic that you, he, you kind he of just, have he to just like him. He just won you over, didn't he? Yeah, With pretty his much. charm and charisma. Pretty much. Pretty Did much. he swoon for him? Were you swooning? Mm, I wouldn't I think, say yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, you were swooning. wouldn't say swooning. You were but. swooning. Uh, either way, like I said, pretty typical biopic. But still, still somewhat entertaining. I uh, followed it up with good old Frida, and we do have an interview with the director of that coming up. This comes out next Friday, I believe, in theaters. Not this coming Friday, but next. Mm-hmm. Directed by Ryan White, and it's about the Beatles' secretary. Now, her name okay. is Frida Kelly, and I don't know if I can talk about it too much, but I will have a review up next week on that, so... I would definitely say check it out. I think that it's also getting a day and date release on video on demand. Ooh. Then I saw Danger Diabolic finally after m- several years of wanting to see this. Um, it's directed by Mario Bava, who I'm realizing is probably one of my favorite directors. Everything I've seen by him, I just love. I love his cinematography and the super vibrant bright colors that he uses in his movies i mean his movies are just so colorful and his camera shots feel like they're so far ahead of their time to me i just i love it and this movie this was my grindhouse weekly pick for the week and i absolutely loved this movie it's completely insane it's based on a comic book and (laughs) it's it's about a master thief who he doesn't steal money to get rich or to give back to the poor or anything. He just steals for the hell of it. <laughs> and, like, in the beginning of the film, there's this big, elaborate heist that he does involving stealing $10 million in cash. And they were like, the cops were like, what's he going to do with that money? And then the one inspector's like, oh, I'm sure he'll come up with something for it. So what he does is he fills an entire room with the money and lines his bed with the money in order to have sex with his girlfriend on the money. <laughs> That's the only reason he took it. <laughs> and then, of course, there's a lot of like kind of typical 60s spy thriller things in here. Like when you think of a 60s spy thriller, you should think of this movie because it's got everything you could ever think of. I mean... 
crazy gadgets, submarines, car chases, shootouts. There's a scene where there's uh, he's being chased by the cops, and he pulls over, and he gets this giant mirror out of his car and, and stretches it across the road, and it's yes. at nighttime. So when the cops are driving, they see their own headlights in the mirror, and they think that it's a car coming at them, and it causes them to veer off the road. Um, there's a scene where the... The government offers up a $1 million reward for his capture. So what what he does, and his name's Diabolic, what he does when he finds this out is he blows up every tax building in the country (laughs) so that the government doesn't have any money. (laughs) And then then what what they do is they're like, oh, our our gold reserves are, are in danger of being stolen by him. So they melt down all the gold into one 20-ton bar of gold. And, of course, he steals that, too. That's doable. That's doable. Oh, it's, it's great how he does it. They're, they transport it on a train, and he blows up the train. <laughs> and it, and the, uh, the gold bar sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and he picks it up with a submarine. Oh, my God. This it's absolutely amazing. This movie is an absolute must see. If you've ever seen the body moving video by the Beastie Boys, this is this is that movie. Yeah, there's uh, clips from this movie in that, and some of its like recreations. Oh. So that'll give you an idea of of what it looks like. But he lives in this like really big, elaborate underground lair that looks really, really great, and it's got a great kind of jazzy soundtrack to it as well. Fantastic. It's a must-see. I mean, this movie is so ridiculous and fun. It doesn't take itself seriously. It's got a lot of comedy in it. And Diabolic is just a badass. Like, he just... He, he loves fucking with the people that are trying to get him. And he just does it for fun. Nice. Yeah. I, good I, to hear. I loved it. It was just a rip-roaring good time, Kevin. Ooh. I haven't heard that in a while. Yeah. Rip-roaring. Wow. Then I saw a teacher... Which is not a rip-roaring good time. Kind of a polar opposite, really. It's a pretty bleak, depressing film. This is the first feature by Hannah Fidel. She was ranked as, I think it was Movie Maker Magazine's top 20 directors under 25 or something like that. Just based on this film? Yeah. Really? This premiered, I think, at Sundance, and it also screened at South By. We didn't get a chance to see it. And basically, it's about a high school teacher who has a relationship with a student. And the relationship ends, and she basically just loses her shit. Mm. And it's, it's really weird because it's not like a typical movie that has this kind of subject matter you know there's no there's no awkward courtship there's no um aftermath like where after she gets caught you know there's no like trial that they show or anything like that when the film starts they're already in the relationship Mm -hmm. and when it ends it's before she gets caught so you basically just see the middle part of the story gotcha and it's it's very well shot. I mean, it's shot like an indie film. You know, lots of uh, scenes of the back of people's heads. And Fantastic. 
very is there some establishing nature shots just random yes yes there is okay okay yes. good to know one scene in particular that i can think of that takes place on a ranch which is interesting oh, like you had you got to have a ranch in there there well it takes place in in austin so yeah the it's a really colorless film everything's very drab looking and there's a lot of really low light in it a lot of dark shots and stuff which that all just adds to the tone of the film and there's this really interesting score in it as well and i like the movie there just wasn't enough here mm-hmm. it was like 74 minutes long or 75 minutes long so it was really short and i felt like it's not a movie about the the event it's not a movie about the relationship it's more about what this relationship is doing to her psychologically so it's more like a like character study yeah, type it, deal it, yes exactly um and the problem is it just doesn't go deep enough into that like there's an event that happens near the end that is sort of i guess her rock bottom moment but it didn't feel big enough to me like it wasn't profound enough for us to be like oh my god like she's lost lost her mind mm-hmm. it was it, there just wasn't enough here i think that it was a good start but i just wanted something more now the cinematographer is the same cinematographer for you were next mm-hmm. yep so there you go yeah it was it was good very good cinematography looked great um i think it's a it was the writing was good I mean, it was solidly written. Uh, the The main character, uh, Lindsay, what's her last? Bur- Lindsay Burge. Yeah, yeah. She was fantastic in it. I don't know if I've ever seen her before, but she she was great in this. Uh, really, really strong performance by her. She was but, in Frances Ha. Oh, was she? Yes. She played dark-haired girl. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you should easily remember her from that. Yep, definitely don't. <laughs> but anyway, I, it's a light recommend. One that I do recommend is Your Next. I, I highly recommend Your Next. This is a movie that was made in 2011, directed by Adam Weingard. And I don't know why it took them so long to release this movie, but... I'm I'm glad it's out. It's playing in theaters everywhere, which is crazy to me yeah. to to see this cast of people like Joe Swanberg, Ty West, Amy Simons, uh, Caitlin Sheel, and these these people that that we know from like the indie world playing in a big mainstream movie like this. I just think it's really interesting. But, how how uh, with that being said, how did this movie perform this weekend? I don't know. Have you, have you heard anything? No, I haven't looked at any of the numbers, but critically, it's doing pretty pretty damn good. I think it has like a eighty. What does it have? Eight uh, seventy nine on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> it was at like an eighty eight for a while. But this, if you're not aware, this is a home invasion horror movie. It has some interesting twists in it. It's not your typical horror movie, and I think that that's why people like it, and I think that that's why it's getting the kind of traction that it is, that and the, the crazy marketing campaign they've been doing for it. Um, 
it is scary at moments. I think that anyone that has any kind of fear of a home invasion will find this to be absolutely terrifying. But more than anything, it's just really, really a cool story. I don't know how much I can talk about it. Like, I don't know how much is common knowledge with it. So yeah. I'll probably I can't really talk about the story, but I will say that uh, this is definitely Adam Weingard's most accessible film. It's his most mainstream looking film, but at the same time, it still has that kind of underlying indie vibe to it. Yeah. Is there, this, would you say that this is just more like a, more like a polished product? Right. It's it's a drinking buddies. Uh, that's what I would, I would compare it with. I mean, it's, it's um, got a higher production value to it and it's just, just a more polished product. And there's some really great shots in this movie. There's some really awesome uh, slow motion shots and it's a really clever movie. There's a lot of really cool home alone esque things that happen in it that I think is the big, one of the big reasons that people are, are liking this movie and uh, I highly recommend it. All right. The most I could find is that it made, and this now this is just I don't know how true this is seven million this weekend. Hmm. Should sound too shabby. I don't know what the budget was. I guess it would depend on what the budget was. But this was a huge weekend, so it it had a lot of competition. Uh, Finally, I saw stories we tell. This is the documentary by Sarah Pauly, and uh, I will say that I love this movie. It was it was fantastic. I recommend that that everyone sees this movie. It's basically it's basically just her telling the story of her family, specifically her mother. But the way that it's made is it, it's so interesting because it feels so intimate and almost behind the scenes. Like we see a lot of it's not a typically made documentary. Like there's a lot of Scenes where they show them setting up the cameras, putting mics on, having conversations that are not related to the questions that she's asking her family members and and things like that. So it feels like a very natural, intimate thing. It doesn't feel like it's this uh, structured documentary. Like, for instance, her, her father narrates the film and we frequently go back to uh, scenes in the sound studio with him recording the narration that he's doing in the film. Gotcha. So it's it's a lot of stuff like that. So it's almost like it's a documentary about her mother, but it's also kind of a making of this documentary and her, her discovering some of the secrets that, that her mother had throughout her life. And it's just a very, it's a touching movie. It's very, it's sad, but at the same time, it's uh, it's almost joyous. If that makes sense. Ooh, I but I I highly recommend it. I think you you would probably like it a lot. Oh yeah. And it's interesting because her last movie, Take This Waltz, it kind of puts that into a greater perspective in a way as well. because uh, yeah, I didn't like that movie. No, I didn't like Take This Waltz at all. But this is completely different. Gotcha. Highly, highly recommend it. See, that, that, that's good to hear because I did hear a lot of people saying good things about this, but I just I didn't like to take this waltz that much that I was just like, no, I'm not. 
visiting this. It's interesting because when I first heard about it, if if I didn't hear any buzz, because this is getting a lot of buzz, this got yeah, a whole exactly. lot of buzz. So if if I didn't hear any buzz and I saw and I read the synopsis, I'd be like, "What's what's going to draw me to watch this movie? It's just about her mom. Like, wh- why would I care? Why yeah. why would it matter to me?" And as you're watching it, though, you realize like it's it, it is about her mom, but it's not just about her mom. It's just about how we how our families tell stories about one another and how these things can get misconstrued and and can evolve over time. And it's very focused on families and and history behind them and stuff like that. So (laughs) it's it's very interesting and I highly recommend it. And that's, that's all I saw. Ooh. All right. I had a late week, but I did finally get around to uh, watching another Bella Tar movie. One of your favorites. Oh, yeah. Because you loved the Torn Horse wholeheartedly, I think. I think it was wholeheartedly. I would call it it an action-packed thrill ride. (laughs) Wait, let me me take that back. An action-packed white-knuckle thrill ride. Wow. What was the the phrase you used earlier? Rip-roaring. That's that's how I would describe the Torn Horse. Rip-roaring, good time, just action-packed. Uh, no, I watched uh, his, what is sort of considered his masterpiece, uh, the film from 2000, uh, Weckmaster Harmonies, which this is probably one of the single greatest films I've ever seen in my life. Mm. As of right now, this might be number one. That's a st- pretty strong statement. It is. It is. I was completely blown away. It is unbelievable. It's like, um, and we've talked about this numerous times, and I hate to keep bringing it up, but, you know, people that absolutely love Terrence Malick and the way that they feel for a Terrence Malick film, I get it now, because I'm like that with Bellatar. Mm-hmm. At least I was for the last, or the last two, the only two that I've seen. But, yeah, it's just unbelievable. Uh, the film consists of 39 shots, over the course of two and a half hours, and they're they're long shots, as you can tell, and they are just perfectly composed. It's just unbelievable the camera work. I think the opening images of the torn horse, you know, mm-hmm. when they do when they're showing the horse, think of that just stretched over two and a half hours. And there's more of a story here. Like for you, you would probably enjoy this a lot more than the torn horse. Let's be honest, there wasn't much going on in the torn horse just a shit ton of subtext but in this film there's actually there's a story there um it follows Velushka is he's all excited about uh there's like a circus comes to town with this giant preserved whale which to me stood for humanity and a lot of other things it's one of those very deeply philosophical movies where you numerous numerous interpretations but just the all the Campbell work and the music is unbelievable and just everything I honestly you just you have to see it even if i have a feeling that you're not going to like this movie but i think you will you'll completely understand why i like this movie so much mm. like you'll get it you'll be like oh i see where he's coming from it's not my cup of tea but i get it 
Right. So I would say to, you know, people that love those types of movies, the deeply philosophical, numerous interpretations, this is a must-see. If you're not into that, don't see it. It's as easy as that. But like I said, amazing. Absolutely amazing. And then I followed it up with a uh, pretty bizarre movie from 1965 called Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. Wasn't exactly sure what I was getting into here, but I did know that it's highly regarded. And within like the first few frames, I understood why. Um, it's essentially like a, I want to say Ukrainian, like a re- Ukrainian folklore type story, which is somewhat dull, honestly. Like I really didn't care about the story at all. But all the the cinematography and the camera work in this film is just insane. It's like the first thing that I saw in this film that I just went, oh shit, is there's a kid that, you know, he's calling out to an adult saying, I think it was like, come to eat the food or whatever that they have ready for. So they're out in the woods. They have the camera attached to like a top of a tree and they have the tree fall down onto this man with the camera attached to it. (laughs) And it's insane looking. And that right there, I was like, oh, okay, this is... This is why it's highly regarded. And they just, he does numerous other things with the camera. It's just insane. There's so many different uh, camera angles that I don't think I've ever seen before in a film. Um, a lot of use of like handheld. And I mean, you can really tell it's very rudimentary handheld here. Like he bumps the camera into trees and stuff, but somehow it all works. <laughs> and then there's some just very experimental things going on. And there's one scene which. I would say this one scene is makes this a movie to see is involving the main character loses his the, the love of his life and just this giant wooden raft that they built it's like three sections to it and it going down the river which just like in the heaviest thickest fog you've ever seen and just the way that it's all filmed is complete insanity so, if you're a huge fan of cinematography, check it out. If you could give two shits about camera work, you're going to hate it. <laughs> um, but you, as you know, that's my thing. That's my big thing. That's your big thing. That's my thing, man. It's my shtick. Uh, and then I followed this up with West of Memphis, that documentary that everyone else saw years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just finally getting around to Um this is like honestly while i was watching this i was hooked i was completely captivated i did not want to stop this but unfortunately i had to i had to go to sleep i had to go to work the next day the entire day at work i just couldn't stop thinking of west of memphis i could not get home to finish this i just i was looking forward to it so much which hasn't happened in a long time mm-hmm. so i finally get home jump straight into watching it we're done. I've just like blown away. Oh my god, this movie's amazing. And then just see, you know, a couple of hours later, I'm having a cigarette, and you know, my logic portion of my brain started kicking in. Like, wait a second, this is completely financed, produced, constructed, created by all the supporters of the West Memphis Three. Like, you know, Peter Jackson. Hell, even one of the West Memphis Three members is a producer on the film, right, along dude. with his wife. 
Because mm -hmm. I, I was starting to have, you know, some questions like, why didn't they go over this? Why didn't they go over this? Why did they just sort of gloss over this information? And then I realized, because oh, they're biased as fuck. They're not going to put that information in that, you know, is detrimental to their images, which, you know, this documentary completely cast them as absolute innocence, which I'm not 100% sure that's true. And the one thing that really really got to me this really pissed me off because i get the underlying it was just a miscarriage of justice the way everything was completely conducted you know the the trial the investigation everything i get that i'm completely on board there right what i don't like is that as they're saying this they do the exact same thing to terry hobbs they find out one little bit of information evidence that might put him at the crime scene. And then they just go on this rampage of essentially saying that he's the one that killed him based on his history as like a wife beater and an abusive husband slash parent, which really gets me because that's exactly what they're crying about with the West Memphis Three, saying that the only reason they did this is because, you know, they were as goth type kids that were a little weird. They were outsiders. And then they made this huge leap. And they're well, doing the same fucking thing. And it pisses me off. That shit's dangerous. You can't just do that. Well, first of all, nothing's going to come of it. So they can accuse all they want. But Terry Hobbs is never going <clears> to <throat> go to prison. I, I know. It's just, it bothers me that they, that they, you know, they're crying about that the whole time. That, oh, woe is us. Look what happened to us. And then they well, do the same thing. I'd probably be crying about it, too, if I got sent to prison for 18 years for something I didn't do. Well, I mean, I did. Well, I won't get into it. But it, it also bothered me that Henry Vons is like, oh, I'm that kid. I'm Damian Eccles. And it's like, have you read the dude's psych report? I don't think you're Damian Eccles. Mm, I don't know. I don't really know. Did, I mean, did, you, did Henry Rollins ever tell his dad that he was going to eat him alive? <laughs> Maybe. Henry Rollins is pretty crazy. <laughs> I don't think Henry Rollins did that. Well, I think just... he, he, obviously he was just referring to being like the outsider, the, the kid that's different. I know, but there there's a lot more that's different to this kid than what's shown. There's some serious stuff going on there. Yeah, uh, it, it's hard for me to talk about this based on just West of Memphis, because I've seen all three uh, Paradise Lost movies, so I have all that information yeah. in my head, too. And See, that, and that's the other thing. I don't know if they glossed over some things that I wanted, you know, that for them to delve in a bit deeper, because it was already covered, and they just figured, oh, it's in the Paradise Lost documentaries, so we don't have to include it. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know what was left out and why it was left out. Well, there's a lot of information that they couldn't fit in, I'm sure. Like, it's a it's a big story. I mean, like I said, it lasts over 18 years, and it's a lot of, lot of information going on, especially when it comes to speculation as to who the real killer was. Um, yeah. Because there are several people that could have done it, but... Yeah, there, there is a lot. It's just, it's all suspect, and it's all it all comes down to just... A, Terrible, terrible investigation. Just, <laughs> honestly, they did a terrible job investigating this crime. Well, the fact that part of their stance on the prosecution was that they were 
devil worshippers. Yeah, that was an actual thing that they were using. Because they they got swept up. Because I remember that shit in the nineties. They got swept up into that, which is again they were just it was poorly handled. <laughs> so completely poorly handled. Yeah. Well, e- either way, I think that if you haven't seen the Paradise Lost movies, I think you should definitely check out West of Memphis. I mean, it's. But a, you, I would. The only thing I say on top of that is don't take everything at face value. Do realize that this is only. It's made from the supporters. So you're not getting all the information. It's very biased. Well, extremely the, biased. That's kind of the interesting thing about the first Paradise Lost because it started out as just a documentary about what these kids did. Mm-hmm. And as they were filming, they started realizing like, wait a minute, there's, there's some weird inconsistencies here. And it sort of evolved into that. So I think that if you watch the first Paradise Lost, that's kind of an interesting companion piece to, to this one, I guess. I just, I'm thinking for me, West of Memphis, like I just viewing it as a documentary. I just think that it's average. I just thought it was okay. Yeah. I mean, everything here, all the information and everything is unbelievable. It's very interesting. It's very, extremely captivating. But the documentary itself is just meh. I mean, they're just putting information together here and giving it to you. I mean, I can just read all of this. Yeah, but that's how a lot of these true crime documentaries are, you know? But Yeah, which I'm, I'm fine with, but the thing that bothers me down the road is that, it, you know, it is biased. My, and my I am thing, upset with the way that they did the Terry Hobbs thing, which completely goes against what they're crying about. My thing is that I just didn't feel that this one was necessary. Like, No, not really. We already have three of them. Yeah. Do we, do we need another one? It came off as just like a condensed version. Right praising and celebrating them like look at all the great work we did to get them out it's like great you can pat yourselves on the back but i don't think you have to make a documentary showing that (laughs) yeah well whatever it's it's fine i i think there's gonna be a uh movie coming out as well uh oh great dramatic dramatic interpretation of it so there's more for you to look forward to i can't wait unbelievable um and then i watched a single shot which i do have a review up uh the movie with sam rockwell who is let's just face it the guy kills it and everything mm-hmm. it's sam rockwell he's unbelievable so that's really all you need to know sam rockwell's in this so go see it <laughs> what do i do i really have to say anymore do you, Adam, do you want to know more? No, I mean, I'm, I was already sold on it. You're in. So. You're in. It's Sam Rockwell. Okay. This, movies with Sam Rockwell in it should just be called Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Sam That's Rockwell it. 1, Sam Rockwell 2. Just down the line. Just number them. That's all you need to know. But uh, it's a very familiar story. You know, Sam Rockwell comes across a heap of cash accidentally. Of course, it belongs to some criminal types game of cat and mouse they want their money back he's trying to keep it and it's sam rockwell with william h macy as the worst dressed lawyer with the toupee ever uh yeah i started watching this but i didn't get a chance to finish it before we had to start recording <clears throat> so I, I did see good old bill macy the 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 cinematography is great 
I absolutely love that. Um, and one of the the big surprises is Jeffrey Wright is in this movie, and I didn't know that it was Jeffrey Wright. Like he plays completely out of character here. I don't think I've ever seen him play this type of person. He plays just an absolute drunk. Hmm. I mean, huge drunk. But he has that like southern accent to him, which he does. <clears throat> it's sort of bizarre because he's much like the drunk that he plays. He stumbles between unbelievable, like greatest performance of his life into like self parody. Mm. He's just like stumbling between those two of like, oh, this is a really bad performance. And then you're like, oh shit, it's like the greatest performance he's ever given. And then he says something else and you're like, well, maybe it is a bad performance. It's very odd, but surprising nonetheless. And like I said, Sam Rockwell. So shut up already and see it. <laughs> this is currently playing on video on demand, so you can check it out there. Yes, I, 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 re- I recommend it. Check it out. It's good. Let's go ahead and jump into a review of The World's End. Ernie, thank you so much for returning. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing pretty good. Now, we just posted your review up on the site, right. and you gave it a 5 out of 10. I guess we should uh, yeah. briefly go over the, the synopsis and all that fun stuff. So this is starring Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, and it also features a whole bunch of people that that i'm a big fan of like uh eddie marson and um mm-hmm. martin freeman patty considine uh, oh yeah yeah big big fan of his too and um, the this is directed by edgar wright written and directed or written by simon Pegg and edgar wright synopsis says five friends who reunite in an attempt to top their epic pub crawl from 20 years earlier unwittingly become humankind's only hope for survival i think that all kick it off since we have your review up. And I think this is probably going to be the first movie where you and I have differing opinions about it. Normally cool. we've, we've been pretty much on the same page and maybe, uh-huh. maybe some of the issues I didn't read your review, right? but maybe some of the issues that, that you had, I also had, but maybe just didn't weigh them as heavily. Uh-huh. Uh, I thought that this was a really good way to end the Cornetto trilogy so to speak. Right. And while I didn't find it as funny as Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz, I found that it was extremely well made. The The writing, like Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright's writing is, I feel like it's just, it's so crisp and there's so much nuance to their writing where the dialogue is so fast and snappy and there's so yeah. many little jokes in there that, it almost demands that you rewatch this movie to pick up on everything that's said. And right. with Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead, it was mainly it mainly focused on two characters, right? It, it focused on right. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost in both of those movies. So when you had these conversations, these back and forth conversations, it was just two people that you really that were involved with it. And in this movie, you have five people. So it's yeah. Just crazy fast dialogue, just jumping back and forth. And I, I like that a lot, but I think that a lot of people may have had issues with it. Like I, I saw this in a, in a full theater, and I'm pretty sure I was the only person laughing in this movie. Oh, right. Like, I, I think that people 
did not find this funny. And is that is that an issue that you had? With no, the actually, I'm the opposite. That stuff I appreciated. That stuff I honed in on. That stuff I was laughing at. It's the rest of the stuff that just seemed kind of superfluous to everything. I was less interested in the other elements than I am as to what's going on with these five characters. So you it's, you weren't you weren't too into like the overall message of of the film. Well, it depends on what you think the message is, but right because uh, there's a lot of lot of uh, themes covered in the film. But again, it was like if I was more in tune with these characters than all the craziness that was going on. Even during the craziness, I was still keying in on the 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 zingers and the the quick uh, quick put downs and quick like throwaway lines and whatnot i was like that and i was laughing at but just uh overall like in comparison like a hot fuzz overall hot fuzz i was laughing from beginning to end but um hot fuzz is actually my favorite one and um this one it was just kind of like hills and valleys throughout mostly spending a lot of time in the valley when we got into the sci-fi elements Mm -hmm. so you you weren't too keen on the sci-fi elements of it yeah i mean without getting into any spoilers it reminded me of other films and some of those films that reminded me of weren't very good. <laughs> so, mm. so yeah, I think that uh, they they give a lot of it away in the trailer. So I think that it's safe to say that they de- they're dealing with sort of a well, they are doing dealing with extraterrestrials, but as to what they are, I don't think that or is that actually in the trailer? Uh, they they yeah, say no. that they're they're robots. They are robots. But they they okay. don't get into the reason for them being there or anything like that. Right, right. But it definitely has a kind of Stepford Wives or um, yeah, that invasion. was one of the one of the ones that came to mind. Obviously, yeah. Invasion of the Body Snatchers yeah. and Attack the Block was was uh, was one of the things I was thinking of, and uh, obviously, yeah, ta- and with Nick Frost in that too. So, did you like Attack the Block? I did uh, overall. Um, although for, I love that. that was one Nick of my Frost, and Nick Frost just seemed like eh, he's doing the same shtick again. <laughs> well, he yeah, and he wasn't in Attack the Block that, no, that not much. That much. But I, I loved Attack the Block. That was one of my top ten movies of whenever that came out, mm. 2010 or whenever that came out, 2011 maybe. I don't know. Yeah, and it seemed like the during the sci-fi elements, the comedy is just um like in Shaun of the Dead, it was like saying it's like there's zombies. Uh, yeah, okay. And here, there's like the robots. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, it just for some reason, I it just didn't hit me as funny as much. Oh, I didn't think it was fun as funny as Shaun of the Dead either. I remember the 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 scene in Shaun of the Dead when they first discover that there's zombies everywhere. I thought was just laugh out loud, just so funny. Yeah. And you're right. I didn't ha- there there wasn't that same kind of reaction in this movie. Mm-hmm. They they didn't seem to react to it as much as what I would imagine. Like I would be losing my mind if that happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they they seemed a little less reactive towards what's happening, but mm-hmm. I did like how the the robots were designed, almost like action figures, where you could just pull their yeah. heads off and put them yeah. back on and stuff like that. And I thought that that was interesting. And I really liked all the fight scenes. I thought that, like, I don't know, I should have looked this up, but it seemed like it was the same kind of choreography that they used in uh, Scott Pilgrim, mm-hmm. where it it was just really fun to, to watch the fight scenes, even though it seemed completely uncharacteristic that these guys would be fighting like this. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, like Nick Frost was just a complete badass. I mean, he was just destroying everybody. On a behind the scenes note, they had uh, Edgar Wright said that they, everybody did, just about everybody did their own stunts so and their own fighting. So yeah, it, those are the guys in their 40s. and <laughs> Yeah, it looked great, too. And I thought... And I liked Eddie Marsden's character a lot. He was probably one of my favorite characters in the film. I just, mm-hmm. I thought his character was just so funny. Everything he said was just really made me laugh. And uh, I yeah, there's think- a there was a moment that he had that uh, I don't want to give it away. Uh, it might be funny to some people. That just like didn't uh, later on in the film where he has a confrontation with somebody from his past, and uh, it just didn't seem too uh, funny to me because it was essentially choreographed. <laughs> Yeah. You know, when you were like already like when those first two meet earlier in the film, you're like you kinda know what's gonna happen and then it happens you're like, hmm. <laughs> so kind of lost its impact. Uh, I guess it's a lot of the stuff that I was dealing with throughout the movie. Yeah, with that, uh I-, I could probably take or leave that. One of the things that I noticed that unfortunately this happens with a lot of action comedies or comedies that, that kind of blend genre mm-hmm. film. Um it didn't towards the end it got less funny as the movie went on it got less and less funny for me and by the by the film's climax i didn't think it was funny at all yeah for me it felt drawn out (laughs) yeah Uh, there was especially because there was one point when i thought that the film was ending and then they went further with it at the very end towards the very end and with that i was like it kind of felt tacked on it felt Um, yeah yeah, I actually said that in the review. The ending felt tacked on. Yeah, it, that that I wasn't too thrilled about, but it really wasn't enough to d- detract too much from me. I mean, I didn't love the movie. I uh-huh. still think that Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz are superior, but it was it, it had a different. This one had kind of a different feel to it. It's almost as if Edgar Wright was consciously trying to. Okay grow up yeah like he was trying <laughs> to end this and i mean that that's essentially a big part of the film in and of itself is the concept yeah. of being an adult and growing up and i and to me the the film kind of had that feeling mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. there's still plenty of uh, goofy stuff in it as well and i also liked how they kind of did a little bit of a role reversal between simon Pegg and nick frost whereas in hot fuzz and Shaun of the dead he, yeah, he was Simon, the, uh, he was Simon Pegg man. plays kind of the straight laced guy, and Nick Frost plays the the goofball. And mm-hmm. in this one, it was reversed, and Nick Frost is this kind of uptight lawyer who doesn't drink. And of right. course, when he when he finally does <laughs> drink, <laughs> that that's amazing. What was it six shots? <laughs> yeah, a six, shoot, a six shooter. A six shooter. He just pounds him. But, uh, um, but I mean, like I said, the the scenes involving the five were fine those were funny and i probably could have easily done without the rosamund pike subplot but um but just when we get into the sci-fi elements it was like i mean i try try not to compare it to like sean or hot fuzz but it's just stuff that went on there was just seeing it was just natural and hilarious whereas here was like hmm been there done that which was not a feeling i had when I, the other two ever mm-hmm. had so mm-hmm. Yeah, I probably could have done without the Rosemond Pike uh, plot as well. It didn't seem to add too much to this story. I mean, there was like mm-hmm. a little bit of 
some kind of romantic involvement between her and two of the other characters, but I, I didn't really understand kind of the, the point of that other than to have a female character in the cast. Like, I just didn't really see where that was going. Right, right. But I still I still liked it overall. I thought the the characters really did it for me. I liked all the characters. I thought that they were kind of interesting archetypes of all these different grown-ups, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I liked how that played out and the just the actors involved. I liked everybody involved in it. And even um another Bond actor shows up in this one, so his part was almost a throwaway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like I could have put anybody in there. I guess I was like, okay, I guess we gotta have some sort of connection with uh, Hot Fuzz or something. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think not not in terms of character, but just thematically of right another Bond actor. So. I think it would be interesting to see all the because I have a feeling that there are plenty of Easter eggs in this that I just completely didn't pick up on. So I think it'd be interesting to see. I'm sure that they'll pop up on the internet at some point. Um, Just, I know that here, I'm sure, I think it was all over the country that did a, uh, or was it Cornetto? Cornetto. Cornetto, a Cornetto trilogy screening. So you'll probably see all the similar themes throughout. Like I noticed in uh, just watching the trailers for Sean and Hot Fuzz that they have a pension for hopping fences. Oh, yeah. So or going like, through them. Or going through them, and you notice how it changes. Like, oh, they did that, okay, they did that, and then, oh, yeah, okay, what happens here makes sense. So, Yeah, there, there are plenty of little things like that. I mean, just the most obvious is at the end of The World's End, how they have the Cornetto wrapper yeah. fly up onto the, the fence and stuff like that. And that, that ice cream is in all of the other ones mm. as well. Like in Shaun of the Dead, he goes to the market to pick one up and I can't remember where it's at in hot fuzz, but I know it's there somewhere. Yeah. I don't remember. I haven't seen it in a while. I think that there was like something where like everybody got ice cream in the police station or something like that. Maybe possibly, but yeah, there's, I'm sure that there's plenty of other things that connect them and uh, I'd be very interested to, to find that out. I actually don't have a whole lot more to say about it. I liked mm-hmm. I liked the way it was filmed, uh, the kind of Edgar Wright almost the, the Edgar it, Wright it's, style. Yeah, the yeah, it was almost Michael Bay esque, but it's Edgar Wright esque style. I like so. how he like in Shaun of the Dead. I think he even did it in Spaced, where he does like the quick the quick cuts and stuff, and he mm-hmm. he uses the camera as part of the the comedy he uses it as part of the experience and i always like that yeah and I, i'm just a overall fan of Edgar Wright. i think that his writing is really good and i don't mm-hmm. know if it's just his or, or him in collaboration with simon Pegg, but i think their scripts are just top notch and yeah. i'm very interested to see what he does with ant-man mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially if they get simon Pegg to play him that would be pretty entertaining. I think it would, but I think that that's just a big, because yeah. I remember, because I follow Simon Pegg on Twitter, and when that when he posted that picture, yeah. as soon as I saw that picture pop up, I was like, oh, God, the internet's going to explode, <laughs> and it did. It's like, well, 
Yeah, but uh, Vin Diesel threw everybody off by pointing at Ultron, and it turns out he's Groot. So, yeah, yeah. So who knows? Yeah, but unlike the unlike Hot Fuzz and Scott Pilgrim and Shaun of the Dead, I wasn't like saying, "Okay, I got to go see this again." And as soon as it was done, I was like, mm, "I'm done." Yes, yeah, see, but, I would, I would like to see it again. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I just wish that the theater I went to see it with was a little bit more into it, like. I just don't understand. Like they were, comp- they were dead silent the whole time. Huh. It was just that, so odd. Yeah, the people were laughing a lot out here in the audience that I went with, and uh, just not me as much as them. So. I don't know if it was just unintentionally not funny. Like it wasn't like there were jokes that didn't work for mm-hmm. me. I just didn't feel like it was supposed to be as funny as something like Shaun of the Dead. It didn't mm. seem as goofy, you know? Yeah. But I don't well, for know. Me, for me, a comedy, a comedy is supposed to make you laugh. If it's not making me laugh, that's not working. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I mean, Precedence is like his previous three films were definitely comedies. Um, and they were all funny. What did you think of Scott Pilgrim? Did you like that when it came out? Um, initially, when I saw the trailer for Scott Pilgrim, like, Eh, I don't know. But then when I saw it, I'm like, I thought it was great. Yeah, I see. I read all the books, and I, the so I was really excited for the movie, and I thought that it was such a good adaptation. I mean, it sticks so close to the books, and Brian Leo Malley was involved with it, and mm-hmm. I just I loved how they represented all the all the stuff that's because I was like wondering how they were going to do that, you know, yeah. but. It was very much so, a live-action video game. So, ba- Yeah, basically. It was amazing. So I I would say if I were to score The World's End, I'd probably give it like a 7. Mm-hmm. I'd give it a 7. So, And you gave it a 5 out of 10. I gave, I, yeah, I'm in the middle. In the middle. That's that's a shame. Like where <laughs> where is this sitting as far as like your, your top summer movies? Because it's pretty much the end. You know, this is this was like the last, really the last one of the summer. Um, it probably would actually be in the middle of the summer movies, not on the bottom, but because um, I've seen worse. But, uh, yeah. uh, somewhere in the middle range. Now, did you see, I'm trying to think of the other comedies that came uh, out this summer, like This Is The End. I didn't get to see This Is The End. Um, the Heat, which I kind of liked. <laughs> yeah, I was not uh, big on The Heat, but... I can't think of those. Those were the only two that I remember that stick out to me. Oh, there was like where the there was some bad ones like where the Millers. Yeah, yeah, I avoided where the Millers. Uh, I knew that just probably wasn't going to be any good. Yeah, I, I didn't see that either. Just because the there's a a cardboard uh, stand up poster thing that's always in the theater for where the Millers, and there's a one of them that says it says like he's he's it says like the sun, and then below that it says, "But he's a virgin" or something like that. And that all, for some reason that always bothers me because it's like what, like, like it's, so, it's so stupid. Aren't most sons virgins at some point? Yeah, it's so stupid. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I would still recommend going to see the World's End in the theater. Where would you say like a a rental? Um, if you're a fan of the. Uh pagan right then yeah go see it just you may like it you may not i don't know but um if you're not a fan then it's probably a rental now this currently has a 91 percent on rotten tomatoes 
Mm. What 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 do you think it is that seems to be working for critics that that didn't work for you? Um, a lot of the blurbs I see they're saying it's a great science fiction movie, <laughs> and but I'm like it's like, hmm, I, I would have been more interested in the human element. But uh, yeah, well, I I can I can see that I can definitely see that. All right, well there you have it. The world's end in theaters now. Let's say go check it out. If, uh, if you're into the Edgar Wright stuff. I think that'll wrap it up. Ernie, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us. Hey, no problem. Let's move on and talk about predictions. Last week, we said the Mortal Instruments, City of Bones. Uh, <laughs> City of Bones. You said 22, I said 20, actual 13. 13? The World's End, oh. you said 84, I said 89, actual 91. That's good to see. Yeah. That makes me happy. Very good to see. You're next. You said 72. I said 74. Actual 79. <clears throat> also good to see. And the frozen ground. You said 9. I said 12. <laughs> actual 55. You gotta be kidding me. Yeah. That's crazy. Something tells me that there that there weren't a lot of reviews in for that one. And that's <laughs> why the score is what it is. Checking it out. Reviews counted 38. That's, well, that's actually a good number. 38. So maybe Frozen Ground isn't too bad. Yeah, but how many of these fresh reviews are actually fresh? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one one that's fresh says, not bad at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a ringing endorsement to me. Yeah. Well, let's go on and uh, let's talk about next week. We got closed circuit this is a shitty week next week as good as this weekend was next weekend is pretty bad you would have you would have thought that they would have you know spread these out a little bit like hey why don't we move some of these into next weekend this weekend was a fantastic weekend for movies next weekend not so much we have closed circuit (laughs) this is the one with eric banna shoot that should be this middle folder what are you thinking on that one yeah i'm thinking middle folder yeah can that be (laughs) Uh, 54 I'm gonna say 52 I think it's probably gonna be worse than that but we'll see Get Away this is the one with Selena Gomez and Ethan Hawke (sighs) and John Voight Uh, (laughs) Manila Folder yeah I'm gonna Uh, say 35 I'm gonna go 30 I think it's gonna be very bad. Selena Gomez is a young hacker. Ethan Hawke <laughs> is a burnt out, burnt out race car driver. Oh my god! I want to see the pitch session for that. Jeez. <clears throat> and finally, we have One Direction. This is us. <laughs> oh, solid week. What are you thinking on this one? Oh my god. I don't know. What is this? It's the One Direction documentary. It's a documentary. Okay. Well, it's directed by Morgan Spurlock, too. Oh, yeah. His career's going in the right places, huh? <laughs> I have no idea. How the hell do you. 70? I don't know. I'm, I think that it's probably going to get pretty. For some reason, these concert documentaries always yeah, get high scores. Like, I remember the Justin Bieber one did, and I remember the yeah, Katy Perry I one mean, did, too. 
how do you really if you're capturing like behind the scenes stuff how how do you judge that you're just yeah, like oh good job getting that footage yeah no i don't think we've ever on the site we've never reviewed any of these and i don't think I, we ever will because what's what the, I, I just don't understand how you can critique it if it's yeah. just I think we should do a feature review next week. One Direction, This Is Us. <laughs> Does that mean you're going to go see it? <laughs> I already bought my tickets. That's Oh, pre-order? That's, that's, nice. the, that's the secret I'm keeping. Just gonna, dropped a bombshell. I'm going to say like 72. I don't know. Do you think it'll be better than Getaway and or Closed Circuit? Like um, out of the three of those, which one would you see if you had to pick one? If I had to pick one, I'd probably see Closed Circuit. Okay. That's probably what I would do, too. Because uh, something tells me the other two are just... Well, I would never see One Direction. <laughs> as, as much as I think the critics will probably like it, I would have no reason to see that. I mean, it'd be like, why would I torture myself to go see something like that? I don't like One Direction, so... <laughs> To sit through a movie of them? Not sure I could do that. In limited release, we have Passion, Brian De Palma film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We'll be coming back to that later in the week. The Lifeguard, which is... There's a review for that really up good. on the site. I heard it. You love that. Ugh. <laughs> Afternoon Delight, which I have a mild interest in seeing that. That's with Juno Temple. I Declare War, which... Uh, we just talked about a few minutes ago. Highly recommend that. There's also a review for that up on the site now as well. And R. Nixon, which is that uh, documentary about Richard Nixon. We have a review for that up on the site too. There you go. Yeah, it looks it looks interesting. I think that that's going to actually be on TV. I think that that's going to be on CNN. I, was say, I thought that. Yeah, I thought this was like actually like a PBS documentary. No, I think it's going to be on CNN. CNN. I think. But it, it played all the festivals. Like it played South by and stuff. I think Ernie uh-huh. saw it at the LA Film Fest. It looks uh, mildly interesting. VOD releases next week. We have Bad Milo, which is the one with. Um, isn't that a bad, isn't that a demon living in a guy's colon? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, all you, to, that's all you need to know. It's uh, actually I I did see this. It's actually quite oh, funny. You did? Yeah, you did see it. Mm-hmm. Produced by the Duplass brothers, and mm-hmm. it's surprisingly funny. It near the end, like probably from the second act on, it gets less funny as oh. it progresses. But all the stuff up until like when the ass demon actually comes out <laughs> is very funny, very very funny. But I actually was, I was I was pretty into this movie. It was very funny. You were into the ass demon. It wasn't it wasn't all just like gross out humor or fart and poop jokes. It, <laughs> there was a lot of that in there obviously, but it wasn't all that. That wasn't what I liked about it. There was a lot of just really funny situational based things that I thought really worked. It does seem like the possibilities are endless with an ass demon. Yeah. Pretty much. There's a there's a funny scene where Patrick Warburton plays his boss and You don't have to, to say anymore, you just said his name and it's already funny. Yeah. They need to relocate his office and they relocate it to a bathroom. 
which is really funny. Uh, uh, we also have Rewind This, which is a documentary about VHS. We have a review for that up on the site. I like that quite a bit. I can't wait to revisit this one. I think it, this is going to be on iTunes exclusively. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Una Noche. Una Noche. Yeah, I don't know too much about this, but it looks I, Isn't looks that the decent. one that I discussed last week? I think so. That's the one I want. Yeah, I've been wanting to see that for... I think I read about this like two years ago, something. And I just figured, oh, I'll never get to see that. Yeah, comes out on VOD next week, so... Get out of here. And finally, we have The Hollow Crown, which is a Shakespeare... It's a four-part Shakespeare series that IFC Films picked up. and I'm, I'm already asleep. Yeah, it's with Tom uh, Hindleston and jeremy irons oh um yeah i'm asleep yeah i probably won't be seeing that but it's getting on it's getting a decent amount of of buzz so there you have it for vod dvd and blu-ray releases this is for tuesday august 27th 2013 we have the great gatsby i didn't i still didn't see this so i probably won't at this point don't ever just it's a waste of your time uh, Pawn Shop Chronicles, which I did see, unfortunately. There's a review up for that. It's terrible. Don't bother. The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which at one point I had an interest in seeing this. Yeah. It's just, but yeah. now I'm just kind of like, eh, if I get around to it, maybe. And Pain and Gain. Pain and Gain. Which uh, I... Still, I still sort of want to see this. I liked it. I mean, it was probably a light recommend. Yeah, but it it was pretty fun. I, it made me laugh. I mean, the problem with Michael Bay is he's just so he's such a misogynist, you know. Like, <laughs> uh, Michael Bay. <laughs> but it's it's still kind of fun. Good times. That's Good all. Good times I have. with Michael Bay. We have one Criterion and one Eclipse box set from Criterion. The Eclipse box set is <clears throat> Rainer Werner Fassbender, <clears throat> his early films. It's got you get five films here. You get three from 1969 and two from 1970. Uh, for me, the one that I want to see the most is Beware of a Holy Whore. So that's in there, finally getting released. Which I think, I don't know if they still are, but I know that they were one time available on Hulu. I don't know if that's the case anymore with them releasing the box set. So don't quote me on that. Uh, the other one is a 1942 sort of spoof movie from Ernst Lubitsch that stars Jack Benny. Yeah. Jack Benny. Jack Benny. So I've never seen this. I don't know anything about it. Uh, it's a 1942 comedy. Hmm. Uh, not for me. Uh, okay. I don't. I don't relate to the comedy of 1940s. No, I usually don't think most people do. But all right. Well, I think that that wraps it up for all the latest film news and reviews. Visit us at filmpulse.net. Send us an email. Feedback. Filmpulse.net. Follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. We appreciate that very much. Filmpulse.net. My name is Adam. And I'm Kevin. And we will see you on Thursday for Ryan Watches the Movie.
Then we'll be. Yeah. Love Get it. stumbling over my words. Get it.